Welcome to episode 2 of season 7 of Delving Into Dance. When it comes to dance in Australia, Philip Adams is quite the maverick. His work is often queer in aesthetic and content and can challenge many assumptions about intimacy, sexuality and connection. This is a warm and candid interview that reveals much more about Philip than many may already know. Philip is the artistic director of Ballet Lab, who runs out of Temperance Hall in South Melbourne. This interview covers so much territory, including Philip's process, or not so much of a process, queer aesthetic, his time spent in New York for those 10 years from 1988, the AIDS epidemic, and the power of art. I started by asking where dance started for Philip. I consider myself a consistent emerging practitioner. I don't think I'm actually uh, have succeeded in finding my practice because it keeps on shifting. So if I have to think back when it all started, uh, I uh, was brought up in Papua New Guinea, in a very remote part of Port Moresby is the capital, and the town which I grew up was um, more of a village. Yeah. yeah. And in that village, strangely enough, there was a ballet school taught by uh, a, lay, a lay teacher sent out from the UK to teach um, tap dancing and jazz on Saturday mornings in a hut. Wow. On concrete. <laughs> out, out, open door. That's one way to develop yeah. muscularity. Yeah. <laughs> but how I came across that particular ballet school, tap dancing and jazz ballet school, was... Tap dancing dogs. Yeah, tap dancing dogs. <laughs> was, uh, I was run over by a car in the local village. Like a truck hit me. Just ran out of the preschool and got knocked six feet in the air. Thank goodness it had a bull bar on the front and fractured my left pelvis. You know, I was only three years old, so three wow. and a half, three and a half. So uh, I don't remember it, you know. But the physical therapy was so backward at that time that the the doctor suggested that when the bone had knitted, kids' bones knit pretty quick. You yeah, know, little bones, still growing. Just a broken pelvis and femur, actually. That I do tap dancing and jazz ballet and ballet on Saturday mornings to strengthen the little leg, ton du plié and rond de jean, and start. So purely by accident, literally, I began moving. Wow. Yeah, so 19, late 60s, yeah. So that truck driver <laughs> <laughs> set up your whole yeah, career. Yeah, yeah. So, and then what's succeed, you know, the succession of... The, um, my career in dance then just went into what high school, you know, Rocker Stedfords and that kind of conversation one has when you're doing musicals at school, etc. And always attending the local ballet school yeah. wherever I lived in Australia. Until one day, and this is the defining point where I found a contemporary conversation with movement, I graduated from school in Canberra. Yeah. Morris Brothers in the very early 80s, hitchhiked to Sydney, as one does when you're 19 years old, and auditioned for the Mike Walsh show. It's like a daytime television, morning, actually morning television show. 
where they would have uh, a pop star be a guest, such as Olivia Newton-John and Johnny Farnham and the rest of the enclave or milieu of pop artists of that era and do backup dancing. Wow. So I actually began as a Channel 9 dancer in 1984 in Sydney. And one of the dancers on the show went, you know, Philip, you're always making up the routines and we kind of think you should go to this school in Melbourne called the VCA, Victorian College of the Arts. I went, what's that? So I hitched up to Melbourne, as I did, with boy-proof jeans, ripped denim, with a punk, with my ass hanging out the back. Still That's a way ca- to get a ride. Yeah, steel cap shoes. I had a red mohawk, I think, at the time, and too many studded belts on. That's almost weighed me down. <laughs> and walked into uh, an audition, and I got into VCA, and you know, my, then the history of the time I spent there was very informative through a postmodern education at the, at the time. Nanette Hassel was my educator, and I still take my hat off to her today. Uh, swiftly found myself post-graduation living in New York with Rebecca Hilton and Lucy Guerin, uh, and spent that 10 years as really informative years that inspired me being around art and dance and working with this choreographer and meeting that artist. They were the greatest and most informative years of my life to have moved to New York, New York in 1988. Yeah. Spent 10 years in the East Village and came back to Australia. Let's talk more about that time in New York, like in terms of... It's foggy. New York was my mentor. Yeah. Yeah, it taught me everything in that survival tactics, of, you know, literally how to get from A to B and manage myself without a care in the world. Yeah. And uh, also, uh, uh, what you say, the French say, folie au soucion, like a carefree folly of the time. And yeah, so, yeah, New York was my mentor. Yeah. What were some of those particular experiences? Mm. Well, in 1988, (laughs) go back, when I lived on 6th Street between Avenue A and B, it was like a fallout shelter. There was cars on fire. I used to dodge the bullets and, you know, the crack houses <laughs> and the white Aussie dude, <laughs> 22 years old, <laughs> would kind of find a very colourful shift from what growing up in Papua New Guinea in this jungle paradise to the concrete jungle of the city. So no, not a, no fear at that age. Just go, right? And, and opening the village voice and seeing uh, the dance section and reading reviews by Deborah Jowett. Yeah. Yeah, these are the early introductions to the work. And, and, um, and New York's a city that you, at that time, you change your, you just like change your friends like you change your underwear. Yeah. It, there is, it's just an immediate, it's right there. It's, it was, it's very now. And I think it, it, it was Aurora. It, it hadn't yet reached a globalised uh, genericism that it has today. It was sexier, it was dirtier, and um, you just don't know how you survived, but you did. Yeah, you pounded the pavement in the way that the rhythm of the city just enveloped and you know, swallows you up. And I loved every minute of it, I wouldn't change it for a moment. And yeah, I, I just started taking class and, and 
going to auditions and then all of a sudden found myself in a company, in a job and I got employed and that's how it all worked out and I spent 10 years and invested that time. It was, a very, it was my second education, yeah, dance. And what kind of dance were you doing at the time? What was the Very downtown. Flavor? Yeah, there's a division. There's a line between 59th Street and the downtown and the uptown. So, of course, you know, New York City Ballet and the Met. And, uh, the city centre is an up, uptown, uptown. Cunningham and Martha Graham. That was a school of thinking. And downtown was the radical space with Stephen Petronio and Trisha Brown, Trisha Brown Dance Company and B.B. Miller uh, and a smattering of independent artists that I worked with them all. Basically, I did my time. Yeah, yeah and uh, I then, yeah, and, and that was a very romantic time for me as well. To sort of be to be falling in love with it, this the encyclopedia of a movement in history that I felt came out of New York, which was um, um, it, it, trying to think of it in the way that I see it now. It was carving out a a space between what was the forebearers of the postmodern era into a more dynamic and virtuosic shift where technique became um, or qualified itself and warranted uh, um, warranted more experimentation with the choreographers of that era. Uh, and I was part of that really heavy dance period because dance was really important mm. dance, dance is a language now in the context of technique and learning how to find a frame in order to position that is not relevant to next generation dance makers mm. I think they see it as historic the way that uh, we would look back at a Cunningham work or a Cage work or a Simone Forty uh, part of the Judson movement, that's the new generation see that era of the 80s and 90s as this in a similar fashion. Yeah. So... And they don't see that lineage necessarily no, no. between... They observe it and learn it, but they're not interested in engaging with it through their practice. I think there is a retrospect in their bodies which is inherited through, yeah, through what is available at this time in history. And, and the last of the choreographers are of a certain age bracket that still hold that baton mm. and are of influence. And I love that the next generation sees, observe that as part of that, but are not engaged with it in the way that it was a big thing mm. to be, uh, to see a Forsyth work. Yeah. And what was the turning point to come home? Mm. Or was it coming home or was it just couple of breakups with a few boyfriends probably I think back maybe they had something to do with it <laughs> no, I'm probably true yeah. Yeah. Uh, I look I, I feel like I'd done my homework it was 10 years and the relationship needed to break up with the city and and I needed to go and explore Philip's conversation around making and I had more opportunity in Australia more money and more 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 support structure the city there's nothing in New York in that way that was uh, available to you through mm. funds wise you all worked four other jobs and you party to four in the morning but you still got up and did your thing mm. yeah it's not sustainable forever no it? and nothing's <laughs> changed it's still the same model <laughs> no one gets paid and it's done out of like pure necessity that you have to you know make movement part of your life uh, uh, for somebody who's not a dance maker or a dance artist what is that drive to communicate with your body because it's, it's something that is spoken about uh, 
so often mm. is that real drive to make and to create with the body? That's a really good question. I'll answer it in that it's viral. Yeah, I think it's made the DNA, <laughs> the structure, the molecule, the makeup of movement is inherited really early genetically into into a into, was inherited early into my body, and that that pulse is addiction. It's it's part of a, a complex um, experiences that for a choreographer like me. Uh, consistently needs to, um, yeah, receive the infection. <laughs> yeah, I like, I, I like that jarring and the jolt and the bad news of something which is actually really, for me, well, I'm talking about experimentation. Yeah. yeah. Like how to find the system working for you genetically to consistently be inside of the practice. Yeah. And it's an addiction. Yeah, and it's also a disability. <laughs> you know I mean? Luke George, a colleague of mine, said dance is like a disability in itself. Like it's just once it's, you've, you've inherited the genetic makeup of it, it haunts you forever. Uh, <clears throat> and there's, there is, I think you have a really interesting point here, Andrew. There's a turning point that, uh, that, that one makes as an artist a mover, movement artist, to commit, yeah, and that happened to me around my mid thirties. I went, I guess this is it. Yeah, yeah. I can no do plan one B. thing. No plan B. I can do one thing, and maybe that's 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 what it's going to be, and accept that. Yeah, yeah. And once that's accepted, I felt that I was freed from commitment yeah. elsewhere. Um, as your work, live with it. We all have HIV. Oh, yeah, that one. Um, I've done a lot of research in kind of HIV yeah. space and I had the privilege of interviewing 20, 25 people who are living with HIV. Positive people. Positive yeah. people. And have lived with it for various There's generations. The from, hence the name of the work. <laughs> yeah, from 30 years to... Yeah. And that sense that we're all living with it. Yeah. The 80s in New York mm -hmm. and early 90s is a very particular time mm -hmm. in how HIV mm -hmm. affected the community and it was very clear in that work mm -hmm. which was actually quite removed from dance but was intersected with your personal histories with mm -hmm. the histories of other people in that shared uh, HIV story. Yes, yeah. To comment on that piece, <laughs> to think back at that work. Um, yeah, I would say that the epidemic uh, was horrific and the art that came out of that era, not just performance body and sculptural body, visual body, is left in is scar tissue in the bodies of the people that were either A, infected or not infected and they I still carry that conversation uh, with me mm. uh, and, and I felt the necessity to, to go back and address that part of the epidemic and 
translate that to what was going on here in Melbourne at the time, and I lived in New York through the epidemic, and yes, I'm going to say 75% of my friends died. And I, it, was like, it was really the cliche of watching them drop off like flies. One week you were in the studio doing contact improvisation with them, the next week they were not there. Yeah. Yeah, that was really hard. Goosebumps. <laughs> Goosebumps, yeah. yeah. And I remember that. I actually see that as in the way... I, when I say I remember that, I recall um, the fear of it, all, of it so much that that particular work, Live With It, We All Have HIV, um, made here in Melbourne for the World AIDS Conference 2000 yeah. and... 2014. 2014. Yeah, um, at the end of the process, I said, why did I do that? Why did I go back and touch that bit of space? And it, I think it were that the people who participated in it had, had a story and a history that needed to be told and to do it through the purpose of performance art or conversation or text or film or visual space... Uh, was a, was an outlet and a format for them to talk about the survival, the beauty of it, the trauma of it, but and now living post mm. the epidemic. Uh, and I particularly, I'm an artist that chooses conversations with my body and with other bodies that provoke something in me that I don't know about myself. Mm. And that one really challenged me. I'll tell you a quick story if I may. Yeah. Um, mm. uh, I went to Italy. I was on tour with B.B. Miller Dance Company. Okay, it's a quick story. My boyfriend came over, Paul, at the time. We flew back after a quick trip somewhere after a tour, as you do. Uh, he got the flu. He was looking really crook. And, and I got better real quick. And then there's that moment. There it is. That's the thought. We're writing the story. He goes to hospital, and I'm down. I'm down doing a rehearsal somewhere on in the in the in Soho with a with an artist that I'm working with at the time, Christian Marclay, actually Christian Marclay, the turntablist. Yeah. Uh, and I get home on the answering machine. Answering machine. <laughs> that you, I, uh, hi, Philip. This is Doctor. So I can't remember. But I think you should need to come up to cyanide and uh, Paul's in hospital. So I already know the answer, right? I know what's going to happen. I go in there and life changes and he's in bed with a machine and, you know, I drip going and he's really ill and the doctor says, look, you know, uh, Paul is Paul has AIDS. And I kind of, I, I remember the shock. It's like a, like a semi-trailer being like, <clears throat> like the action of being hit by a kid, you know? Mm. And I, so I go into a little bit of shock and I'm in a room with a counsellor and all I did was put my arm out to them and said, could you take my blood, please, and tell me the answer? And they did. And I had to wait a week or two weeks back then or something, and the doctor said, you'll live to be an old man, Philip, you're okay. You don't have this, this disease, and, but you keep yourself regularly tested and whatnot. So, so I watched Paul die, and, you know, that was really tragic in my life, and I sort of look back at it now as a memory of sort of that, that I'm, I was scarred with the fact that my partner actually did die. Like, you know, I watched him held in my arms and just that last breath go away. Uh, and then I think that, I think to that, that space created um, a, a sorrow in me, a, f 
a survival in me and a fear in me and a, new, a work that I had to make to release the fear years and years later, like the post-epidemic trauma out through these other brave souls who came into the work who are positive and gave their story. Mm. So I think this, all my work has a, has, has a, a, a hark back to childhood nostalgia and, and that's rethought, the rethink of that into these fantasies and queer spaces to which I then play them out. Mm. And I need other bodies to help me do it. Yeah, so I don't call them dancing bodies, I call them bodies that are willing to come into my process and risk it all. Yeah. I can be quite uh, brash with my processes and we'll maybe we'll get into that conversation. So yeah, I'm a, I'm a person uh, who, I'm 52, and uh, I lived through the epidemic, and my partner did die of the era, and, uh, and that's life. Mm. <laughs> that's part of the makeup of, I think, the risk. It hit the art so particularly yeah, hard yeah. as well. It's a long story. Sorry, I did carry on. No, no, like a no. Long time. Yeah, yeah. But it, you know, it did really hit the arts mm. because that was oh, a safe yeah. space for the queers. That's right. Yeah. And you, know, you can just imagine how many creatives we lost. Yeah. And oh. how different the creative ecologies would be mm. had that not mm. wiped out so many incredible mm. voices and thinkers and. Um, visionaries. Visionaries, yes, visionary. I think you've nailed it. Yeah. They were vi- visionaries. I think of Klaus Nomi, <laughs> a person that one of the original, uh, well, yeah, um, opera punk, you know, and yeah. The, In particular, the, the coming. Theatre of his history. Yeah. Coming straight out of gay liberation as well, that yeah. kind of weight yeah. off, you know. The momentum for change yeah. and agitation. And, yeah. Yeah, anyway. and their cut-off line, was it 97 when... The, when, when ART became... Yeah, I think there was like a point, if you lived to that point, you got over the line. Yeah. And, you know. But for, yeah, I mean, I don't know, got into the story, but for years I was paranoid. I'd still go and get tested forever, like going, oh, I still, you know. And the member adopted just touching my, you know, patting my hand once and went, you know, Philip, you've got to start. Yeah, you're okay, but I obviously had the fear still in me. You know, I still carried that that moment. But that idea of live with yeah, it, yeah, because exactly, even living without it, you're all, yeah. all yeah. living with it, like that notion of. So I had lived with it. Didn't wasn't in my body in the way it's a virus, but I had lived with the the the, set, the sorrow. Yeah, and still doing many. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know. Cool. <laughs> Just great to talk about. Good. <laughs> so in terms of your process, what, what is your process? Yeah, I don't have one. Sorry, I, I'm a, I, I, I know that what I do know about my process is that um, it, it's a psycho-thriller. Yeah. It's a, um, a rambunctious child. Um, it's narcissistic. It accumulates a truckload of of stuff to sift through the rubbish bin and make sense of what those materials and objects and cinematic um, references are. And then my process is about completely letting go of a process in order to get on with what it is I really want to say Mm. and be, be, allow my audience to 
to be absorbed into it or actually seduced into it. Mm. There's a bit of a maquis de sade in there, I think, like a tortured moment that, that is seductive. The end result of most of my work um, is... It doesn't really, I, I think, succeed in uh, being a, satisfactory, a satisfied um, dance or performance artwork, mm. but I, I feel audience connect with there's enough memory in it for the audiences to go, oh, that could be me, mm. or I would have done that. And that's where I, I think I allow people to see this person I am in the process. Yeah. yeah. It's about behaviour. I, I, I'm a queer person, I imagine. People see me as a queer person, or what is a queer person? And uh, I don't know what queer is. I mean, it's defined by every generation. Yeah. They, we make it up as we go along. It actually does have no definition, really, other than strange, unusual, bent and... Uh, off kilter, you know, I kind of think. So, uh, yes, I think that the that it it has a genuine exploration of flamboyant behaviour qualities, yeah. and I'm like that in the studio. Um, I I often can't articulate um, the experiences to which I want the artist working with me to to be in, um, I make everything up, I do all of it, I improvise for some, a long sessions until, until I exhaust myself, um, and they're often extreme, mm. by, by their, I conduct it in a very extreme way, and I think the artists that want to work with me or are drawn to me also want to have that same tortured or punished or traumatic desire to to get into a into a body that they don't haven't been in before. Hmm. Um, for example, um, at the moment I'm obsessed with the Wurlitzer, the organ that would be raised out of the cinema um, proscenium arch and at intermission played um, while people got their ice cream in the foyer. So we're talking the St Kilda Astor and the, so so the the sinisterness and the haunt, the, the roller rink and the, the haunting. Uh, sound, even Woody Allen soundtracks, I think, use Wurlitzer's, which was a replacement for the entire orchestra, um, conducts, is conducting itself towards me. And I have a musical background, I have a degree in musicology and orchestration and my early years, so music is very important to everything that I create. I'm really a, a hangover from the American postmodernist. I think that's where I slip into the history. Yeah, but what defines my work away from uh, I think what would describe as more of a generic space is it's it's decidedly queer, <laughs> and I can't tell you what that is. So, but if I I have two organs at the moment and two young boys, and they're obviously um, reflections of me uh, running back and forth playing an organ note, and then these two little go karts that drive around the organ, and it seems like a, not a Willy Wonka moment, but a real or Tommy the Who or these sort of films that are coming into it in the imagery, but they're, they're musical explorations of the notes themselves, which are colour-coded, and all the Casio and the drum box and the rhythm and the tango, all going at once in my head. So there's like a... There was an album put out in the 1970s called Moog, 
Yes, I don't know if you know. They would play classics like Ravel or Beethoven's Fifth on a moog, which was an instrument, which was a real synthesizer and whatnot. So I remember the record cover album, which was a man's head with 20 cables coming out of it, like leads, very 70s, a bit, bit Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Heart Club Band kind of vibe. And that's the cover of I Start With The Image. Yeah, wow. And I, I remember putting the record on and the needle on the vinyl and then... And then dancing to it or making up a show in the living room, sort of entertaining the parents kind of thing. And that's that child space. It's obviously what I will do. But, you know, this, this, these things are never seen in the work. Yeah. They're just experiments. And I let go of it. And often the artists that work with me are hugely frustrated that we worked for a year on this one moment and you're not even going to use it, none of it. I said, yeah, but that's the beauty. You've got to let go because you've got a better idea coming. Yeah. But it's there if you need it. Where I think a lot of choreography fails to... Where it, where it fails, and I do, never want to use this word fail, but it does fail itself be, uh, because it's still holding on to the experience to which was processed in the studio originally and really not relinquished. Yeah or unleashed like a hound to, to, its, to its master. And that's how I, I kind of go, you've got to let it go. The last, I'm jumping on subjects now, you've got me talking about that. The sec, I made a work for the Melbourne Festival last year called Ever. And I, I spent one year rolling with people, literally just would ask people off the street if you would roll with me for an hour. A really intimate moment, like it would be you. It's big, I don't know your body, and it's very um, intimate. And it, it, it has a sexual space, but it also has a nurturing space. And this went on for a year. How I would many literally, people said yes? Yeah, well, most of them would say yes. Yeah, I would just walk down Burke Street and sort of what pick somebody and go, look, you know, I'm an artist, it's a very unusual thing to ask you, but I don't know you, but how do you feel about coming next Wednesday to a studio if I can give you my number and roll with some dancers and me and people are like, oh yeah, what's that about? Or, you know, people, they don't care. Others will totally, you know, think I'm a freak and then go, hey, sorry, no, mate, one thing. But the process of doing it is part of the work. Yeah. It's breaking the barrier of it. And then, and then the final product is a, is a 25 metre inflatable by David Cross with body bags colour-coded in a Modrian modernist space to the music of Richard Strauss, but I dehumanised the work completely and there's nobody in it. So I removed the corporal altogether yeah. and it's just paint. So, but to get from that to painting and film is the level of experimental condition to which I must do in order to show the, the, what I really want to say. And I think you make a really good point because those... Well, those processes are so often they happen in the studio, removed from an audience, and audiences don't necessarily understand the steps that somebody has taken to get to that they point. They never, no, you can't. All those different sketches and all those different. That really upsets moments. me. It's a real bugger they don't see that. But that's, that's, they see an end result. They see a product. One hour. Yeah. And they can only assess it based on what they see. Yeah. Which is an interesting point. That's probably why I'm getting moving my audiences a little closer. Yeah, I think we, we talked about when we started the conversation tomorrow 
And I think some very early moments there where I'm asking the audience to come up and participate and hold a blanket and uh, be naked and go to, through a cult. Yeah. Dutch science fiction, maybe there's too many Spielberg <laughs> films <laughs> references in that. And, but yeah, that is sort of asking the, just for you to step over a point of uh, a confronting moment and an intimate moment that might um, not work. Yeah. Yeah, and it's it's about that um, seduction, and eventually surrender. Yeah. <laughs> to the impulse. In terms of seduction mm. and sex and sexuality, your work is often not always, but is coloured by, I guess, a queer look at mm. bodies, bodies in space, the nude body. Mm. Because um, even in tomorrow, you know, everyone's naked, and the audience is then invited into this. Yeah, we had the nude night. <laughs> that was they sold out in five minutes. Yeah, it was the audience was totally naked. The Utopia was finally a complete work. Yeah, and it was one off, so it was great. Yeah. yeah, you're right. Yeah, to be in the work, you had to actually you paid for the ticket, and then you take your clothes off at the, in the foyer, and then. You are, well, actually, you undress together and then the work begins. And there was that one performance which is not recorded because you can't just exploit the person in you know, the public domain, social, social media. And yes, I'm not sure what the question was. But, uh, it wasn't really a question. No, no, it's not talking about it. leads me to the work After Tomorrow was called After. Yeah, I made a work called After. I don't know if you know yeah, this work. Yeah, After. Yeah, you came to the yeah. the massage table, and then, yes, this was also another another um, clue. Yeah, <laughs> it's only a clue. That's all it was. It was about figuring out this. Once you lock eyes, I don't know. Do you, you participate yeah. in it? Did we lock eyes at one point? Did yeah, we? probably. Yeah, yeah, and once the lock is in, you never take your eyes off each other. But it's the trust. Yeah. Will he touch me? What's my role in this? Is he trying to abduct me? Or is he actually having a sexual fantasy with me? And I hope you thought all of those things. It's a negotiated intimacy, you. isn't yeah. it? You're negotiating a sense of intimacy or a sense of connection that is otherwise not necessarily always present in life. Beautifully said. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's it. I think you said it better than I, yeah. Which is not otherwise, you can never encounter that. And, it, and a lot of your work does that on different scales, in different moments. Yes. Yes, it does. It operates either in an overtly flamboyant way or a very personal deeply personal way, yeah, that you can go with, we're talking about after, just the one. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think it, I think after is a, quite superficial, because it's manufactured. Mm. You, you're given a floor sheet, you have to take, you choose, you choose to wear like a, a gown, sort of a science fiction Elizabeth Taylor, like accepting her Academy Award in 1972, is exactly the same gown. <laughs> so they're all reference for it. Or be nude. 
uh, did you choose to be naked or you wore... I think I had the gown. You wore the gown. Yeah. yeah. And those that wore the gown were like, I wonder what it was like if I was naked. Yeah. And those that were naked said that to me, I wonder what it was like if I wore the gown. So the work, uh, in conclusion, is about your decision at the beginning of the clue is when you get that floor sheet, whether you choose to do it naked or put on the gown. The work's irrelevant, but that choice is what it's about. It's interesting, isn't it? Because yeah. you're already confronted with it, and you go... Why is nudity confronting? Oh, confronting? Yeah. It is confronting for me in, in the process of performance space, in that the fragility or the vulnerability of sexual... of, of situa- a situation which can be sexually amplified is available. If it were clothed, it is not available. Yeah. So I try to find the challenge each time I want to work naked and push it further and further in order to find out uh, perhaps more about my, um, my fetishistic uh, desires. The reverse of the work is that you go into a white room, after is a dark room, the mirrors, you're naked on a table, and that is your passive role. The next work is in a white room. You are, in fact, the person who walks into the room and there's already a body on the table, and you're given five minutes only to do whatever you want with that body. So you reverse the role. So now you do the work in two sections. So there's before and after. Yeah. And your fantasy, you make that decision. What if it's a female 75-year-old body that you're in the room with and she's on the table and you're allowed to do whatever you want to her? There's permission. Yeah. What would you do? You'd probably sit in the corner and think about it or go, I'll walk out. Or what if I did touch her? Yeah. There is a taboo because, but if she were clothed, well, you want to talk to her, I'll do whatever you want. But the experiment then opens up further yeah. in about intimacy and about provocation. Yeah, and again, yeah. it's that negotiating. Yes, intimacy. negotiation, it's yeah, yeah. Space. Yeah. And I did have some really um, interesting encounters with after. There were some people who chose to do. Um, uh, to sexually uh, amplify the work. There was a couple of customers, yeah, but I chose to not to engage. Yeah. yeah it was really interesting, the negotiation changed. It's just a, it's just, yeah. In putting that kind of potentially explicit, well, not explicit, it's the wrong word, but that sexuality and sex yeah. into a work, do you somewhat challenge normative notions or other people's... How do you become the subject of my, my fetishism? That's what it's about. That's my process. I think you've helped me unpack my, my, uh, my work. Yeah. I'll send you an If invoice. it's not about... Thank you. Yeah, I'll, <laughs> pay, I'll pay. I will. I, if, it, if it's... I don't know. I just I think it, for me it, it has to not be from a newspaper clipping in a and someone else's story. It's got to be real for me, otherwise I'm just replicating somebody else's inspired moment in history. Yeah, there's so many problems (laughs) 
with dance today. <laughs> so many, so many conditions that there, this heart back to the 60s and 70s, which I kind of feel is where it set, sits right now. You know, working in a, in a gallery is one escape for it to, to an outlet and to be public. Yeah. And to be put in a bleached arrangement in a very bourgeois environment still exists and bores the shit out of me. I, I don't connect at all. I just sit down and go, okay, I'm just watching history. Even if it's a, uh, from a contemporary choreographer, I still go, oh, yeah, that's right, I remember this. I sit down and I watch it and, and I go. And then there's the an arrangement that we have, that I tend to wallow in a bit more or succeed in finding uh, experiences with people that I don't know that come to watch. Um, I think there's a lot of danger in, in the statement, feel free to move around. I want to, well, I could just walk in, take a selfie with me or you and walk out. What do you want me to do? There's no instruction. I think that people need instructions. They want to participate. They want guidance and they want to, to find the experience between what is going on live and what is happening uh, in a third dimension. Yeah, outside of the falsities, the falsities of the theatre. Mm. And that's where I sit. I'm a bit the Wizard of Oz and Toto pulled the curtain back and he was, you know, operating all of... That's, that's me. I think I have that Oz or that Willy Wonka trick. Yeah. There's a bit of magic there. There's a bit of the child wanting to entertain its parents still. Like we were talking about earlier. Nothing's changed much. They're all part of who I am but we just see them in sort of cinematic spaces yeah. so I think my work's like I feel that most of my work now that I'm generating is very cinematic but lives yeah. turns off the silver screen onto the floor yeah and they challenge I guess normal normal modes of communication yeah. or preconceptions yeah. Yeah. maybe that's what makes it really queer queer yeah there's a definitely like but yes, it's def- I'm, I don't know about the queer thing. It's very, very 90s, isn't it? Is it? Yeah. We kind of coined it, or drag kind of, it, went, it had to find a commercial space, so there it was, it's done. And now it's just regular. I don't think there's anything queer left. We're not even in post-queer, we're just, it's just, it, I think it ended with the, dan- with the dandy. Quentin Crisp, I think, Bo Brummel and, and Sebastian Horsley and, and the movement of, of dandyism was sort of at its peak of, of, of public display of, of flamboyant behaviour like a peacock and then drag as, a, as a, an art form is very commercial and a bit passe. I think there's still love culture. I think it's still queer. I just think there's a lot of people that take on an idea of a queer aesthetic, but not necessarily a queer politic. No, they discover <laughs> it and then it and then dress ups. It's like dress ups. Yeah, pantomime. And, and there's You're that good too. if it's right. Yeah, it's right. Yeah, yeah. And I think taking it into club culture, like you're saying, into uh, performance space is kind of I don't know. It doesn't. It's just, yeah, it's not that interesting for me, but it has to be done. Yeah. Someone's got to do it. So, looking back, <laughs> what are some like turning points in your career or some highlights or oh, yeah. particular moments, okay. either good or bad, that have shifted? Yeah, I want to I thank Christian Marclay. He's a composer and a turntablist and a visual maker. I would put him in that bracket. Uh, I was 
and a benefit at PS122 in New York uh, dancing and there was David Lynch was there and Isabella Rossellini was quite, quite a few stars of the era and raising money and uh, I got to make a work for it and I was a dancer at the time with everyone and um, and uh, yeah I just put a, a, a bookend on stage at 5pm 5, 5 and then at 5am I put another book end on stage so I sort of bookended the evening like literally pretty bad like object work and Christian Marclay who I didn't know this at the time went who was the guy that did the bookend piece with objects in there oh that's Philip yeah he dances with Trisha Brown and you know, does everybody and it's like oh yeah right um, so he came to me and said look I'm making this piece in Berlin and uh, sorry in Munich at the State Bavarian Opera and I'm looking for a choreographer to work with objects that uh, uh, I would like to employ and I was like cool that sounds great I was 28 I think and so I quit my job and <laughs> I moved to Munich with him for six months and I was allowed access to the State Bavarian Opera's props department called Das Fundus which means lost and found actually and so that's you know chandeliers and bobby pins and pianos and fridges like I mean talking a hundred years or more of props in the department in the attic and so what I did is um, he goes, what would you like to do with them? Well, I have Leibach was the group he was working with. It was a sort of a heavy metal uh, art rock band from Ljubljana. I think they were. They were very cool at the time. And him and some other cool people. And um, so I laid them all out in colour codes, all the brown stuff, the green stuff, the white goods. And the opera singers over five hours make a whole flea market on the opera, the, the opera hall stage, which is about 3,000 seater, whilst he played, and, and this was the beginning. This was the Les Enfants de la Sautelage, the children of the magic. Like it had a, the teacup dancing with the spoon. For me, it was the time of the object. I'm learning how to find relationships with materials. And, and he goes, well, Philip, you know, you really should continue to find your experience as a, a visual artist in a... And I went, what's a visual artist? I didn't even know what that was. And a, and a mover. So he really influenced me to make. And, and uh, I still have that footage of that work. So it's like five times the size of this room we're sitting in now, which is 15 metres by nine. Um, of a f so that's a lot of stuff to move around over five hours to figure it from. And it had to have the scale of it had to go from five metres down to the floor. So they're all, and at the end it's an installation, it's shot and filmed, but it has to be repacked away and then presented over the next night. So this was my first, this was a defining point in my career where I, I, I understood my relationship and love of object and structure and architecture. Um, I'm, my second greatest <laughs> moment that I can, I'm, I'm actually having one right now, I'm building a house. And, and that's my just dream to, to live in uh, the house that I've designed. If I weren't an artist, a uh, movement practitioner, a choreographer, you want to call it that, I would have been an architect and, or a baker. Yeah, because I've got a panache for baking. Um, and I, I wish I was on the Great British Bake Off. That's one of my dreams. So we're off track here, but that's where <laughs> I operate best. Off track. Yep. Um, also, I think... Um, I hark back at the first work that I ever made called Amplification. Apparently, this is a masterwork, people say, you know, it's, and it's, it hasn't it's been the bane of my side, but people still today rate, right, will do any, go, go hell for leather to, for me to remount it. Next year, it's, it's 20th anniversary. It's toured, it toured the world 
I had world domination once. I was really like into touring, <laughs> yeah. and being a successful choreographer, and having my work shown and this, that, and the other. I don't have that desire anymore. Temperance Hall is my space, and this is where I show my work. I don't need to tour. I yeah. don't need to go anywhere. I want to be here. This is where I. This is the mind of my mind is here, and my work is showing here. And that's kind of an interesting model to be having now. Yeah. Yeah. I think I'm the most unprogrammable artist in Australia, so I'll make my own space <laughs> for it. Just do that. Right? Why are you the most unprogrammable? Oh, especially now, God, we're living. I just, from what I what I understand of this festival model, it's very had its hates fast, its, its heyday, it's finished. It's just, it's not that it's shopping mall stuff now. It's just not very sexy. I think there are much more interesting festivals than our. Reg, uh, our major city festivals like Monofoma and Dance Massive World Festival of Live Art. People want the intimate and the boutique and to feel that. I don't. I think that the hangover of that time is putting on spectacle or it's very, very middle class and bourgeois. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's just that's what it's become. Yeah. It's just a work that that um, that's made in that condition that you know you're going to spend one hundred and thirty dollars on. Uh, and it know. is shopping mall in the yeah. sense that the same work can be programmed in Sydney just and Melbourne Festival. Exactly. Just because it's Wayne McGregor and Olaf Olsen doesn't mean it's good. Right? It's just labels. You can buy them anywhere. But when it's custom made, that's when you get really excited. People love the bespoke. Mm. Yeah, they like to get off on something that no one else can get. And I think Temperance Hall is that space. Mm. I will never put a seating bleacher in this room. Then I'll become a venue or a theatre. I'm fucked. I'm out. I'll be just another house. Mold house, dance house, arts house. Yeah. There's no point. This room has to have an imagination for the artist as opposed to a condition to which they have to abide by or a rule. And that's what the word temperance is a perfect marriage for me because I'm probably the most untemperate artist you can imagine. <laughs> but I focus. It makes me focus. And I'm a non-drinker, so... It's a marriage made in heaven, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. So greatest highlights were that piece by Christian Marclay and there was the house I'm building now and this, this, this venue uh, that I want to hand on to the next uh, visionary artist who will take it into its next space. So my job is to fix this joint up uh, and support merging practice and have a flexible space that operates between visual body an action body, yeah. And what is the, you know, the gallery and the performance space collide, you know, black and white box stuff, we could get into that, but it really, our, 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 our interests here are to, to explore both the paradigms between, I just that word lightly, sorry, our visual and performance body as much as we can, so our program is balanced. Yeah, but I'm actually, this might be contradicting like, the whole point of our conversation today is that I'm actually a really shy and conservative person. Yeah, underneath it all. I'm very honest about that. I think the front bit, like all of this uh, uh, oozing of, of, of excitement is real, but inside I'm just a scared little child, still surviving. David McAllister said something quite similar. Yeah. That going into a room as... The artistic yep. director is a mask. Absolutely. Does not feel comfortable going into the room as that's David McCullough. That's same. Yeah, yeah. And I, it's weird. 
I, I go into that room of that, that money and that opening and I just become someone else. I'm this other character. It's a role. Yeah, I don't know what it is. It's just it's instant. It's like, it's like instant coffee. It's like that, the minute the door opens. Yeah. Yeah. I have, and, and I do it really, really easily too. I just somehow slip into conversations and work myself into circles of people and all of a sudden it's there. Whereas the reality is I'm quite a shy and internal person that, that, um, that is, has a fear of death. Yeah. So that's why I keep on like, avoiding it. And all my work is only about dying. If you look at it all, it's all about the afterlife. Yeah. Yeah. If you think back, tomorrow is about that space yeah. to which you're existing in an above. And amplification is about the catastrophe of the car crash, the 1.6 seconds association on the time freeze when you have a head-on collision and you sort of go into that warp space. They're all death, deathly spirals to which I continue to try to reach the point where I will hopefully die making. So I won't know. It'll be quick. Single man, right? The last line in the film. <laughs> it came quick. So we can hope. Yeah, you've covered a lot of ground. Thank you so much. I've had bored you. No, it's been great. <laughs> this is a lot to talk about. Yeah. yeah. Oh, amazing. I'm a very obs- yeah. I've got obsessions, and my biggest obsession is 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 modernism. Yeah, I'm a victim. I think Andy Warhol, you know, paved the way and didn't let any of us walk. <laughs> he he stopped it. That was the end. I think that was the last the last bus out, and then we're just a hangover of art that come from the factory. If you've enjoyed this episode, stay tuned for more great episodes, including with Luke George and Chase Johnson, who won UK's Best Male Dancer last year at the National Dance Awards, and was recently the first gender-fluid person to dance in the female ensemble at the English National Ballet. You may also enjoy other episodes on the archive, check out delvingtodance.com. You can hear episodes with Deborah Jowett, David McAllister, Stephanie Lake, Raphael Bonicella, Anouk Van Dyke, Gideon Obazanic, and many others. Delving Into Dance relies on the support of you, the listener. You can contribute on the website. Delving Into Dance also acknowledges the support of the Victorian government through Creative Victoria. You can find Delving Into Dance on Facebook and on Twitter, and you can subscribe on iTunes. Until next time, take care.